Um, it's, it would take me an hour at least to properly introduce Rosita Wuerl, our speaker for today. Um, I'll just very quickly summarize a, a few topics. Um, she's a member of the Thunderbird Clan, House Lowered from the Sun in Kakwan, and um, has a PhD from Harvard and an honorary PhD from UAA. And uh, but she followed in the footsteps of her mother in, in working for her people and being an activist kind of before she got into anthropology, but she had anthropology in her heart, which she followed in those activities. She, uh, back in the 60s, I think it was, she took objects from the museum here, State Museum, around to the villages. She founded one of the very first dance groups in Southeast Alaska. And um, she also um, uh, fought for the protection of Indian Point in 1969 and again in the 1990s. Uh, this was all before she went to college and became a, a student of anthropology, uh, ultimately leading to a, a degree from Harvard. But uh, along the way, she uh, did research in North Slope and worked at UAA as a research anthropologist doing important work on whaling and uh, in subsistence and in a, a variety of other topics. Um, after that, she uh, became a founder and, and publisher of Alaska Native News and continued her research and, and advocacy of serving, for example, with the Thomas Berger Commission. Um, she followed that with uh, coming down and working as a special assistant for Governor Cooper and um, became a professor of anthropology at UAS, and, uh, but uh, continued her interest in, in research and doing, doing projects and eventually became president of Sea Alaska Heritage Foundation, which became Sea Alaska Heritage Institute. Uh, she's very well known in the state and out of state. I should say that she is a, was a founding member of the board of the National Museum of the American Indian and was very important in her role as uh, a member of the NAGPRA Review Committee, the national uh, body set up to help implement NAGPRA nationwide and, and became chairman of that and served many years as, as a very able chairman to help bring that committee back to a functioning level. Um, and uh, I could go on and on, but anyway, I'm very pleased to, to introduce and, and say that Rosita will be speaking on Tlingit spirituality and shamanism in the 21st century. Thank you. Goodness, you had to dig really hard to find some of those things about myself. Uh, well, first of all, I want to welcome you all here. I'm glad you're here. Um, I, I was hopeful that this was going to be our last year that we would have our lecture series here in the boardroom. Uh, I was hopeful that we would have our new uh, Walter Soboloff uh, Center completed and that we would be having our, our lecture series there. Uh, but it looks like we won't be able to do that uh, until 2015. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, it's an exciting opportunity for us over, I don't know if you've seen the building there, I'm putting a plug in for the building because I have $2.4 million yet to raise. 
but I'm confident that the good people of Juneau, our friends and the state, are going to come through and help us with that building. It's going to be a really awesome building. It's very exciting right now as we're planning for the construction uh, for the interior of that building. We're working on the exhibits already, uh, trying to see you know what, what we're going to be able to bring to the public uh, and to our own constituents as well. Uh, but that aside, I'm glad we're here in the boardroom. Um, um, we want to thank Sea Alaska again for allowing us to have our lecture series here. Um, this is a really exciting topic for me, but it's also a very sensitive topic. And uh, I know that uh, it, it's an issue that uh, we still have a lot of conflicts around, particularly with, uh, with our older population and with those who uh, may be the children of those who suffered from the, the kind of punishments about having practicing our own uh, religion, our own uh, traditional beliefs. And so I want to be, you know, sensitive to those people who might have, you know, feelings of conflict around, around shamanism. I know it's a topic that our own people don't like to discuss very often. Uh, we had a meeting here in this boardroom where actually our Council of Traditional Scholars uh, and really didn't want us to, to be dealing with it in a very public way, but it was really our younger people who came forward and said, it, it, we really want to learn about our traditions, we want to learn about our heritage, we want to learn about our spirituality. And um, that persuaded our Council of Traditional Scholars to outline uh, the protocols under which we could talk about it, under which we could uh, look at our shamanic objects and how we could use it to educate the non-native the non people and the public about our traditions. So I want to acknowledge those very progressive uh, traditional scholars, even though I know that a lot of them had misgivings uh, about uh, openly discussing this. And uh, to them, we're grateful that we're able to, to learn more about it and to talk about it. And it's really important, you know, that we do bring it forward because I know that there are a lot of misconceptions about uh, shamanism, both by our own people as well as the general public. Um, I taught a class on, on religion, and I think it's really important, you know, that we set the context uh, for a discussion about Tlingit shamanism by just talking about shamanism in general. First of all, shamanism is, is a very ancient practice. In fact, uh, there are some scholars who have said that it's perhaps the oldest religion in the world. However, we have some scholars who, um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you this brief introduction just to shamanism, and then I'm going to take you right into Tlingit shamanism. Uh, we have some scholars who say that, that shamanism is not a religion, and they state that because we don't have priests. And uh, they say we don't have individuals who are priests who supervise the moral order of their community. Uh, we don't have, uh, they, uh, shamans are not uh, formally, des they don't have formally designated responsibilities. And also, they don't worship uh, specific de deities or follow a prescribed uh, set of laws. However, shamanism does possess several elements 
that are essential to any definition of religion in that it concerns itself with the same issues that are, that are addressed by established, formalized, uh, organized faiths. For example, they deal with, uh, they have the metaphysical dimension uh, of what exists beyond the physical world and whatever does exist uh, can be brought to benefit, the in, to benefit individuals and the communities. Uh, while there are no written structures or creeds that govern shamanism, it has developed its own equally complex system of symbols that serve the same purpose. Uh, although shamanism doesn't have a single supreme being or series of deities, uh, the spirits of animals provide this focus and represents a parallel concept. In addition, uh, there are recognized places of powers that are recognized such as cave sanctuaries and many of you who might have heard Steve Langdon's uh, lecture, uh, he talked about some of the cave uh, uh, sanctuaries, one of which you know, we, have, we have keen interest in, uh, in which I guess he identified some 70 or 80 uh, uh, pictographs or paintings. And anyway, uh, they we also have other sacred sites that are, are where sh shamanic rituals are held. Uh, while not a, a priest, the uh, sh shamans communicate with spirits and their powers bring them uh, and bring the spirits to assist them, uh, to assist the people that they serve. Shamanisms also have, shamans also have uh, well-defined duties and they are recognized by a special uh, title or designation. Although no written universal shaman creed or doctrine is recognized, uh, consistent patterns of behavior and traits are, are associated with the shamanic complex. They are practiced in widespread parts of the world and they've been practiced uh, throughout history. That together uh, says that gives this shared world view. One of the common denominators uh, has been referred to as the ecstatic experience of shamanism that occurs when shamans are in a state of trance. Uh, shamanism is generally associated with hunting, fishing, and gathering societies that often migrate with, sea, uh, with the seasons to follow their food sources. To bring food, health, and protection from evil, shamans seek, seek connections with animal powers through their rituals. To become a shaman, an individual must receive a sense of mystical vocation that marks them as a person possessing the unusual abilities of a successful practitioner. These, um, these Powers might be acquired through hereditary sources or they could come at any time during a person's life uh, through exposure to spirit powers. Awareness of the presence of these forces is usually occasioned by the onset of some illness or else a vision or particularly vivid dreams, but once a call has been received, it must be accepted. 
to acquire the spirit and the power, the individual must then remove himself uh, to a setting away from uh, the community. They will go either into the depths of a forest, uh, the middle of a desert, or to some great heights, or into a cave, or anywhere that is thought his exposure uh, his, might expose him uh, to supernatural forces. Thus removed, the novice seeks to establish connections with the spirit world through a series of ecstatic trances that are brought on by the means, such means as hallucinogenics, the use of hallucinogenic or other drugs, or enduring privations from food, water, or sleep, or drinking uh, salt water, water or some other emetics. During this period, the, shaman, the novice learns the world of the dead and animal uh, spirits and to speak in the sacred, secret languages of animals. From these experiences, the shaman gains his power to work and communicate with the supernatural. The majority of spirits uh, with uh, which the shaman makes his alliances are animals, animal spirits. This reflects a widespread belief by cultures that practice shamanism that, that animals inhabited the world long before human beings and are essential to people because of the unique knowledge that animals possess. Animals are regarded as superior to humans in their ability to communicate and while they understand us, we know little about them. Um, I wanted to also emphasize another aspect of shamanism, and that is reverence for bones. Uh, it's, this is a common shamanic theme. Because bones are the longest lasting part of the body, it is believed that they are the source of all life, that the soul resides in them, and that animals can be reborn from their uh, bones. For this reason, bones are never destroyed, but rather they are carefully preserved in bundles or they could be, uh, uh, or as complete skeletons of birds and small animals. In the Northwest Coast societies, we see that uh, bones are often carved and used as on, uh, amulets in shamanic rituals. Closely related to uh, the, uh, the presence or actual bones is their depiction, usually as skeletons, on some of the objects and costumes uh, used by shamans to proclaim their wearers as one who has died and has been restored. And this you'll see in a lot of our shamanic objects, the skeletal, the skeletal outlines. Uh, we'll see this a lot in, in some of the, in the artwork that you're going to see, the shamanic pieces that, you're see, that you'll see today. Uh, these aspects are, of shamanism are widespread throughout the world and uh, it suggests an ancient system. Uh, certain, uh, certain elements of shamanism can be seen in the cave paintings of the Magdalenian culture in Europe that date back to 18,000 uh, BC. And there is some suggestion that shamanism or the roots of shamanism could have even been practiced as early as the Neanderthal man, some, 40, uh, some 70 to 50,000 uh, BC. So now let's take a look at Tlingit shamanism. 
Clinkage shamanism uh, formerly comprised a major component in uh, Clinket life. Uh, however, Clinket shamanism no longer exists. However, we, we find that there are underlying um, spirituality and shamanic and aspects of the shamanic complex that still persist. We have ancient rituals that have been transformed and incorporated into modern day ceremonial life. Uh, shamanism succumbed to the zeal of the Russian and the American missionaries and government officials who vigorously persecuted the shamans uh, in the 1800s. Embedded in the historical records as well as in the bitter memories of the Clinket people are accounts of cruel torture by the military. Uh, these acts of repression and the inability to the cure the new diseases and epidemics contributed to the demise of the shamans. Uh, however, we see that a few shamans continued to practice as late as the 1950s. The Icht was the primary ritual practitioner and he served as the intermediary between the natural and the supernatural world. He could be of either gender. Uh, great shamans were said to have up to eight spirits. Shamans travel both in the physical as well as the spiritual uh, form and they battled with shamans uh, and then their spirits. Every clan had a shaman and uh, clansmen were eager to, to serve as the shaman assistants. In this photograph, we see uh, Skandu'u. He is one of my clan grandfathers, uh, and I have a son who is actually named Skandu'u. In this photograph, it's a historical uh, photo of him after he had been sent to prison for practicing his trade. And at that time, uh, they were, he was uh, supposed to have cut off his hair where the, the spirit, the power of the shamans reside in the hair. But if you were able to take a closer look and you're able to see behind this, you'll, you would note that he actually had continued to grow his hair, uh, but he hid it uh, behind, behind his head. You're not able to see it here, but uh, we know that that skandu'u did do that. Um, the responsibilities of the shaman were, were many. He was responsible for maintaining the well-being of his clan. He served as the military advisor. Uh, he communicated with uh, his clan's people who had left the village. Uh, he also restored to uh, human form those who had been transformed into uh, the land otter by the Kushtaka, the land otter man. And he was also responsible for ensuring uh, success in hunting and fishing activities. He was also able to predict uh, future events. Uh, he cured illnesses which were assumed to result from spiritual rather than natural causes. So the sham shaman's curing practices were divided into three uh, categories. Uh, the spiritual illnesses, as well as physical wounds or injuries, and also he was responsible for the clan welfare. There were um, a number of sources for the causes of supernatural illness. 
Uh, it could be from mystical retribution for taboo violation, or it could be soul loss, or spiritual aggression, or uh, illness could result from witchcraft and sorcery. Uh, the supernatural illnesses were cured by a non-clansman. And here's where we see a difference between non, a non-clan shaman and a, a shaman who was a member of another clan. So when you had a spiritual illness, you had to secure the services of a non-clan shaman. Uh, the injuries that came from accidents or from warfare, are your own clan shaman might be able to treat that injury. Uh, I have to tell you that I have not been able to understand the reason for this distinction. Uh, I've talked to a number of people, uh, talked to uh, scholars, Clinket people, and I uh, haven't figured this one out yet, but this is something that's basic uh, to Clinket shamanism. Uh, and so this, and the table here um, shows uh, um, the, the curing and the clan membership of the shamans, except I see that in the clan welfare, we have it both marked, and actually, it's only the clan shaman who could cure, uh, who took care of the clan welfare. Uh, witchcraft was seen as, um, was often a cause of sickness. Uh, and uh, we call it gush, or this is when an evil spirit was sent by a naksati, or a master of medicine, or a witch. Uh, and witches in, in Clinket society uh, were more often men. This is uh, in direct contrast to other societies where witches were more often women. And there have been a lot of studies about, uh, about that. Uh, anyway, the, the, uh, the, um, the master or the witch uh, manipulate manipulated evil spirits to harm members of his own clan. But whenever somebody had been, uh, had, had, uh, been subject to witchery, they had to find a non-clan shaman to, seek, to treat them and also to seek out the witch, witches. Uh, witches were tortured until they confessed their guilt. And it was this practice that really led the missionaries and uh, government officials to suppress uh, shamanism. Our last public accounts of witchcraft was recorded in the 1950s. However, I will tell you that there are Clinkets who continue to believe that they have been uh, the object of witchcraft. And um, we have some Clinket people who have said that it's ironic that the witches who were viewed as the practitioners of evil uh, were protected by the American and government officials, while shamans who were responsible for the general welfare of, of the Klan uh, were persecuted. And uh, they say this is why we don't have shamans today, but we still have witches. Um, now I want to talk to you about uh, spirit successions. Um, it's actually the spirit who determined who would become a shaman. Uh, individuals or uh, uh, aspiring shamans actively sought to acquire a spirit, but there were some individuals who received a spirit even if they weren't trying to become a shaman. 
and I had noted that it was important to accept the calling of, of the spirit. Refusing to accept uh, the spirit could cause great harm, uh, insanity, or even death. In some instances, the calling of, to shamanism was evident in early childhood. And we see these, uh, these children were very different. They didn't play with other children. Uh, and uh, you could see the, the beginnings uh, that they were already starting to have to act differently. They were receiving spirits, <coughs> but not yet uh, full shamans. Uh, the initiate uh, went deep into the woods. In the Clinket culture, they went deep into the woods, uh, purifying himself by fasting and abstaining from sexual relations. An animal might come to the novice, and the novice was then required to cut out the tongue and to put it in a bundle and then hi hide it in the woods. These spirit quests were repeated uh, annually and to acquire uh, eight spirits. And this was the maximum number that every great shaman tried to, to get was eight spirits. After the death of a shaman, the clan leader called on the spirits of the deceased shamans to choose a successor. The spirit might enter a novice who would then announce that he was the successor. The novice would then again enter, uh, like the predecessor, would enter the forest with eight of his kinsmen to seek a spirit. The shaman spirit and uh, the associated shamanic comp complement included a personal name, uh, a special song, and a regalia that transferred through the maternal line. In this photo, you see uh, a box, and uh, the shaman paraphernalia was kept uh, in a special box. Uh, Delaguna, an anthropologist who studied extensively among the Tlingit, reported on the succession of a spirit through four generations. She, uh, she found them uh, going from a brother to his younger brother uh, to a nephew and then finally on to a woman in the same clan, and this was in 1909. Uh, this woman was not actually seeking a spirit, but it came to her as she was assisting uh, in the repair of the uh, a grave house of the first shaman. Um, spirits transferred along the maternal line, but uh, during the historical period, we see that uh, shaman that the spirits began to to also uh, travel or transfer through the per paternal line, and we suspect this uh, occurred because with the population declines, we had uh, massive uh, epidemics that decreased our population, and then there were you know there were ongoing sociocultural changes that came with the arrival of the Euro-Americans. Um, shamanism is a group activity, and I really want to emphasize this point that it is a group act, uh, activity. The shaman was the primary practitioner, but other clan members assisted. It was imperative that he had the assistance of other clan members. 
Um, the uh, clan members were dependent on a shaman for supernatural protection and also for assistance during uh, military encounters and hunting and fishing. Uh, usually there were two to five uh, maternal nephews who served as assistants but we see in some accounts that some shamans had up to uh, ten, ten assistants. Uh, the commitment of the, of the assistants continued even after the shaman died. So the shaman, uh, the shaman assistants were, were there to help him when he was weak, when he was too weak, when he had fasted and he had undergone all of the, the rigors of becoming a shaman. Uh, they were there to help him, uh, take care of him when he was just too weak, uh, too hungry, uh, to even, you know, to have the strength to do any kind of work. Uh, the sisters of shamans also played a critical uh, role. They prepared uh, meals in place of the wife and they also made ceremonial clothing for the shaman. In, and this is in direct contrast to the rule uh, that, uh, where that says that ceremonial regalia are made by the opposite side. Shamanism was not an individual pursuit, but it required the participation of clan members from the very first uh, acquisition of supernatural powers and all throughout his practice um, uh, as he conducted his prove uh, professions during the memorial rituals and even after his death. And I emphasize this because in some of the literature in some of, and even some of my uh, contemporary colleagues still continue to insist uh, that uh, shamanism was an individual pursuit and but I will say that some of those that uh, espouse this uh, belief haven't done any field work uh, among the Clinket people, but yet somehow or another they came to this, uh, this position that it was an individual's uh, activity. But if you look at anything that the shaman did, he had, he had assistants that worked with him, they helped him, uh, they wanted to be part of it. Uh, you will see that, uh, that the clan would always, always call on the spirits to try to come into a, another, uh, another individual in, in the clan. And uh, we know that even in the contemporary period we've had uh, individuals, clans, that where they don't have a shaman, they've brought a young, one of their young nephews and have had them crawl over the grave and uh, until, in the hopes that they might be able to acquire the spirits. And, uh, we, uh, one of the accounts I have is where the young nephew is reported to be crawling over over the grave. Uh, he wasn't able to acquire the spirits, but his uncles kept him there and said, keep crawling. Uh, they finally had to give up uh, after a lengthy period where it was obvious that the spirits was not going to come uh, to that young nephew. Um, and this is also important, I just want to also note this, this is important because now in uh, repatriation we've seen some instances where some individuals are claiming that the sh shamanic paraphernalia belongs to an individual and this is in complete contrast to the realities of Tlingit shamanism. Uh, 
insofar as the different types of ceremonies, there were at least three different types of shamanic uh, rites. We had the winter ceremony, uh, the curing uh, ceremony, which occurred on an as-needed basis, and we also had initiation rites that were held when the shaman assumed his predecessor's position at the conclusion of a shaman's vision, uh, vision quest and the acquisition of uh, spirits. Uh, the winter ceremony uh, was, and actually this is the time where we would now be holding uh, the winter ceremony. It was held at the first quarter of the full moon of the winter months and it, this ceremony was used to call the shaman spirits to support the welfare of the clan and the entire community and to ward off any hostile or dangerous spirits. This ritual took on added uh, a significance after the arrival of the white men and their introduction of the alien diseases. The malevolent, malevolent, I can't say that, the bad spirits uh, in the winter ceremonies were thought to be diseases that were brought by the explorers and the traders. Uh, they also represented the spirits of those who had died from these diseases and had returned from the land of the dead. Originally I had said that the winter ceremony was, uh, was conducted to call on the shaman spirit to protect the clan from hostile and dangerous spirits and to ensure the community and the clan's well-being. Um, the Clinkets initially resisted vaccinations which they viewed as the source of illness and intrusion of hostile spirits. In fact, we have one account in which, a, when, in which the Russians vaccinated a shaman and the shaman thought that he, they were trying to put in uh, evil spirits and the shaman actually bit off the area where he had the flesh, where the uh, area where he had been vaccinated. Uh, this winter ceremony was altered to include warding off western diseases and epidemics. This uh, transformation of religious practices was a mechanism to interpret, it, to interpret previously unknown illnesses. And then we go to the initiation rites, and it is as the name implies. It was uh, to announce uh, when a new shaman joined the ranks of, of, of shamans. Uh, they were allowed to demonstrate uh, his new spiritual powers and hopefully acquire a, a clientele and the compensation. I might note that shamans were uh, brought a lot of wealth uh, to their to their clan. Uh, he also um, then acquired his uh, predecessor's clothing and also the shamanic paraphernalia. And I wanted to uh, draw your attention to this uh, uh, illustration here. And remember my. <coughs> my comments earlier about the importance of bones, and this is where uh, the power resides, is in the bones. <clears throat> I had noted that the, our Clinket elders uh, remain in awe of the shaman's powers, and uh, they are uh, reluctant to talk about <coughs> shamanism. 
However, we had a region-wide uh, clan conference, and uh, at this time, and this was maybe about 15 years ago, <coughs> our clan leaders at that time noted that we had Western medicine, and Western medicines had replaced the supernatural remedies to cure uh, most physical ailments, but they pointed out that we had many social ills and they attributed our social ills uh, to spiritual causes that stemmed from being out of social and spiritual balance. In, in our society, it's, uh, we have a number of practices to ensure both uh, social and spiritual balance. And they were holding that we were out of spiritual and social balance, and this was the cause of our the social uh, illnesses that affect our society. So they uh, concluded with a discussion uh, of the need to restore uh, spiritual balance and uh, you've seen uh, that in some of the work of SHI where we have focused uh, on this issue. Now I wanted to transfer to a discussion about uh, the objects or the shamanic paraphernalia. Uh, the Clinkets continue to believe that all, all of nature is endowed with spirits. Uh, I've had meetings here in this room where uh, people like our spiritual leader, Dr. Soboloff, has pounded on the table and says, everything has a spirit. Even this table has a spirit. And we see that there is transformation between uh, the natural world and the supernatural world, um, between animals and human spirits. And the shaman was the individual who could communicate directly with his spirits uh, uh, in his spiritual healings and endeavors. These uh, spirits, however, were not exclusively associated with his clan. For example, we have the land daughter spirit that was associated uh, with many, if not all, clans. And so we have all of these uh, shamanic objects in w that are thought to possess these spirits. <coughs> A shaman spirit or yake differs from the spirits that are symbolized on our clan Atu or our regalia. Uh, you've, you've seen the crests that are on the blankets. Those crests are, those, the spirits of those crests are very different from the shaman spirit. A, a shaman transformed, was transformed into his spirit through the use of his regalia and objects. Um, the spirits resided in the shamanic objects and even today they are considered to be objects of great power. Uh, sh these shamanic objects serve to connect the shaman with his spirits. The shaman assistants, assistants were the only ones who were allowed to handle a shaman's professional paraphernalia. Uh, shamanistic uh, objects had powers of their own and could move of their own volition. And here you have the mosquito, uh, the mosquito mask. Uh, we know that the Thukakhadi also had a, a mosquito mask that was thought to have uh, great powers 
and could move uh, of its own volition, independent of being moved by, by any human being. Uh, shamanic art articles like rattles, drums, tapping sticks, and the rattling of shamanic accessories uh, made the necessary percussion uh, sound to summon the spirits. The shaman was transformed into the spirits represented by the mask. His dress also symbolized his spiritual transformation. Uh, some objects like the rattle were placed upon the patients in order to cure them. He also used um, prophetic bones to see the future and he used his warriors outfits and weapons to fight evil spirits. Uh, Aldona Janidis, uh, an art historian from the University of Alaska Fairbanks, analyzed uh, shamanic objects that were taken from 23 graves and she found that there were two dozen animals uh, that, were, that were represented on these objects and here's a list uh, of those uh, spirits or those animals. Uh, whenever the shaman used his warrior's outfit, he was actually engaged in spiritual combat, uh, combat with hostile spirits and each object contributed to the totality of the shamanic rites and together reflected the mystical relation and communication uh, between the natural and supernatural worlds. There were, there, they were a source of power for the practicing and the aspiring shaman, his assistant, and his clansmen. And in table uh, 22, we see a list of the shamanic objects. So it, it uh, comprised a significant uh, portion of, the, of, uh, of, of our material culture. Now let's talk about shaman graves. The uh, spirit of the shaman and those that he had acquired during his spiritual quests inhabit his gravesite. They remain at the site uh, if they had not yet transferred to a successor. Should the spirits find a successor, um, should they, he find a successor, one of the shaman's primary spirits would remain at the sites. Additionally, the guardian spirit represented by the large sculpture, and here we see a very large sculpture that is found at a grave site on POW. Actually, this one had been, they were, the uh, uh, people were trying to maintain secrecy around this, around this um, um, guardian spirits, but we had some non-clinket people who went there and cut down uh, the trees that had been hiding uh, the, the gravesite. This, so this is a really grave concern that the clinkets have is the desecration of their sites. Um, you might recall a number of uh, years back when uh, we had a federal agency that wanted to build uh, a, a, a facility out at Indian Point and the Clinket people here in, in Juneau just vigorously uh, opposed uh, this activity. Um, 
So there was a series of meetings and I will tell you there was a lot of discussion at this point in time whether we should really talk about the significance of shamans and the presence of spirits at that site. But in the end, uh, the Clinket people felt it was important to, to tell the world that in fact they did, that uh, we did believe that there were spirits there and uh, we were told here at the Sea Alaska Heritage Institute by our elders and clan leaders that it was our job to die protecting this, this grave site. So that's a very strong belief that the Clinkets have about uh, protecting their grave sites. Um, a shaman spirit uh, could cause great harm to individuals who did not belong to a shaman's clan. And so it's only members of the clan that could go to a shaman's gravesite. Want to emphasize that to the Clinket people because again there are some misconceptions that no one is supposed to go by uh, a shaman's gravesite, but yet we have the responsibility of caring for a shaman uh, grave sites. So it's really only the clan, clan members can go to uh, a shaman's uh, grave site. This only time that a, a non-clan member could be in contact with a spirit uh, who was associated with the shaman from another clan was during the uh, time period when that shaman was calling a spirit to heal uh, or cure that, that ill a person. Uh, the Clinkets continue to avoid graves, grave sites of shamans who belong to other clans, but they will make offerings to the spirits residing in the grave sites and ask that they send them good fortune. So I don't know if any of you have seen me sitting on a plane and as we've flown by Indian Point. I'm out there offering, uh, offering, uh, making an offering for good spirits and also th trying to throw out my illness at, uh, at that point. Um, clan members are, are required to care for their shaman's grave sites since the spirits, his spirits continue to inhabit the sites and the objects that are, have been uh, interred with him. But once the spirits enter the body of a success for successor, they are then allowed to remove the, uh, the paraphernalia. Uh, in some instances, a shaman might instruct his successor to visit his grave upon his uh, death to receive his spirits. Um, Lieutenant George Emmons collected extensively uh, from graves of shamans during the period of, 19, of 1882 to 1887. Uh, his first collection came from a very old grave that consisted of objects that had transferred through five generations of shamans. Some of you may have seen uh, some of those shamanic objects that came from a grave site at the clan conference that was held a couple weeks ago. Um, the accumulation of uh, paraphernalia at these grave sites could have occurred during periods of uh, epidemics when Clinket people were perishing in large numbers and there were no eligible successors uh, who survived. 
many uh, Clinkets lost their sacred objects because of the new religions that condemned uh, Clinket beliefs. I always like to quote Joe Hotch, a clan leader from the Kaguantan in Klukwan, who says that they collected our sins. The missionaries who told them that these objects were sinful collected their sins and brought them to their museums in Russia. Um, I said that uh, shamanism as it was once practiced uh, is extinct, but we have contemporary elements of shamanism that have survived. Um, we have the underlying themes that gave rise to Clinkin shamanism, uh, that, that the belief that all beings and entities of nature are endowed with spirits. This is a very strong belief that continues to persist. Uh, we continue to believe that the spirits reside in sacred objects and that spiritual and social relationships exist between the natural and supernatural worlds. This is most evident if any of you have had an opportunity to participate in any of the Clinket ceremonies. Um, the, this, these beliefs persist and uh, among the traditional Clinket of today and this ideology and worldview is most clearly reflected in the use of sacred objects and regalia in our ceremonial activities. I've said that there are no shamans, but again, we have a number of practices and elements of shamanism that have, sur that have survived that reflects the spiritual relationship between the natural and the supernatural. And uh, today we uh, have Clinket people who are thought to have to be in contact with spirits and to possess varying degrees of supernatural uh, powers. There are some very uh, fascinating stories about individuals who could bring boats in to, um, to dock, uh, land them at, at harbors, even when uh, it is it is just foggy out and you can't see. There are all, lots of stories about individuals who have these supernatural uh, powers even though they aren't shamans. Uh, we see the communication with spirits occurring in our kuih, our memorial ceremonies, um, when our ceremonial and sacred objects are brought out and our, the spirits are addressed or called upon in the same way as they were in earlier times. In some communities, in some of these uh, ceremonies, you'll see that food offerings are made to spirits, while others make uh, symbolic offerings. Uh, caretakers of clan objects are also known to communicate with the spirits of objects in uh, their care. Uh, the belief in the land otter man, uh, the Kushdaka, uh, possesses that, and the Kushdaka, the land otter, is uh, thought to possess the ability to transform humans into land otters. Uh, this belief remains strong, and it's one of the reasons why, when a clinket has been lost at sea, um, the fear is that the shamans might take that, take that uh, person who is drowned and uh, Clinkets will go to extreme measures to, uh, to, to try to, to recover uh, that uh, person's body. Um, 
We also have other kind of practices such as the use of devil clubs that are used to protect one from harmful spirits. If you had been in this boardroom uh, two or three months ago, you might have seen a bag of devil's club that was used uh, in this room to try to gather the evil spirits that were thought to be around. Uh, and then those devil clubs were then burnt on the beach and the spirits pushed out to sea. Uh, you also will see many clinkets with different kind of amulets, the raven and eagles, or other, uh, other amulets that continue to be used. Uh, we have eagle feathers uh, that are also employed to protect one from spirits that might cause uh, great harm. And it's one of the reasons why you'll see where the Sealaska Heritage Institute and others have gone to great extent to try to introduce legislation to protect our use of things like uh, bird feathers. We've also moved to protect uh, when someone wanted to uh, harvest uh, Devil's Club commercially. The Clinket just rose up as a community and protested that because they were concerned that that might lead to uh, the elimination of, of uh, Devil's Club in our community. We also have the spirit dance or the yek uh, uti or imitating the spirits. Again, um, this is something that's performed at our ceremonies. Uh, we here who work in Sea Alaska Heritage Institute, uh, we have shamanic objects that are here in our collections. Uh, we are not allowed to touch them because we don't know uh, the clans that these uh, objects represent and uh, we've delegated to our non-Clinket people the responsibility of uh, handling those shamanic objects. We don't know if any of them have had any, <laughs> gotten any spirits or what, but. Also you see the Native uh, Search, uh, they've uh, adopted a ritual that's reminiscent of uh, shamanic practices. They have a healing blanket that is wrapped around a patient to bring spiritual and emotional healings. And uh, we, we have some discussion uh, in our communities about uh, seeing if, if it's possible to bring back shamanism. It's probably unlikely that shamanism, uh, as it was once practiced, will be among the traditional elements to be revitalized. I say that, but who knows what will happen. Um, so it's, it's not inconceivable that we might have new forms of uh, shamanisms that might be reintegrated into the ideological framework and practice that have survived. And as I have noted, we have some Clinket people who are exploring uh, this very uh, possibility. This is a very complex uh, topic. I might tell you that when I first started uh, to, to draft this PowerPoint up, I had near 80 uh, pages. I've had to condense it down. Uh, yesterday, I had it down to 45, and today we managed to get it down to 34. Uh, there are just many other elements of shamanism uh, that you'll have to wait to hear or you'll have to read my paper on uh, the Icht uh, Klinket Shamans and Shamanism. So thank you very much. We have time for a few questions. If uh, anyone wants to pose a question to Rosita, please go ahead. 
Well, you had mentioned that there was a great deal of persecution that shamans faced at the hands of missionaries, but also stated that those practicing um, witchcraft or witchery had certain protections. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that. Yeah. Um, the shaman... Oh, sure. <laughs> this is a on the video. Okay. Sorry. Sorry about that. Okay. Witches, witches were thought to practice evil, you know, evil things, and they, and they brought, they would, uh, they could witchcraft people, hurt them in different ways, and it was the shaman who tried to, to find out who the witch was, tried to get uh, the evil spirit out, out of the patient, but they also tortured, tortured uh, the witches. And so it was this particular practice that led to the persecution of shamans, along with other practices like saying that shamanism, native spirituality, native religion was paganistic. So you had, it was combined in those forces to try to uh, rid the world of shamans. But like I said, there are those who believe that um, the, since the military and the government officials protected the witches that we still have witches who are among us today or those who can practice uh, witchcraft. You mentioned a paper, is that going to be online through those? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.